Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have James Carter, who's Professor of History at St. Joseph's University, and he'll be talking about his new book, Champions Day, The End of Old Shanghai, which was published this year, 2020, by W.W. Norton. Shanghai's status as a bustling international city in the present day hardly needs much introduction. And it's also pretty known in many Western countries that today's cosmopolitanism had an earlier analogue during China's pre-1949 era of European semi-colonialism. But images of this earlier heyday of multinational Shanghai are often incomplete, either romanticising it as an era of expatriate hedonism and adventure, or decrying it as a barbarous time of imperialist predation and exploitation. Exploitation there certainly was. And in this book, uh, James Carter does not shy away from discussing the racism and exclusion of imperial Shanghai life from the latter part of the 19th century up to its demise in the 1940s. Yet, as the title suggests, Champions Day is also about, also about a quite different kind of race. And since that's a pun used in the book, I'll uh, permit myself to employ it here, uh, namely horse racing, which serves as a highly novel and revealing lens through which to look at this period of the city's history. Aside from using horse racing to give us a rich portrait of Shanghai's different worlds, Chinese, colonial, hybrid, and others over the period, Carter makes other striking innovations. Focusing our attention on a single day, the 12th of November 1941, on which uh, he also sort of takes us close to the action of a number of events which occur simultaneously, uh, he describes a state of affairs which presaged the demise of the old order. From Champions Day itself at the Shanghai Race Club to a posthumous birthday celebration for founding father of Chinese nationalism Sun Yat-sen and a funeral procession for China's wealthiest woman at the time, these three events are expertly interwoven to bring out the tensions and excesses, the separations and connections which made up old Shanghai in both its pomp and its decline. Just as rewardingly, the book bears the mark of an author whose familiarity with the city today permits thought-provoking comparisons with a new era of cosmopolitanism on the Huangpu. And so it's a great pleasure to say, Jay Carter, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks very much, Ed, and thanks for that very kind introduction. Looking forward to the conversation. Likewise. Well, uh, it was a, such a fascinating book to read. Um, and I think even for people uh, who are somewhat familiar with Shanghai and its history, of whom I hope there were many among the audience this podcast, there'll be an awful lot to learn about uh, from this book. Um, but before we discuss it, uh, I'll begin by asking you about your own background and uh, I guess, how you came to the point of being interested in uh, Shanghai's history and uh, the like. Sure. So I, uh, I started really my studies of, of Chinese history as an undergraduate um, because primarily I didn't know much about it and uh, was fascinated by class that I took and was fortunate enough to be accepted to study uh, with Jonathan Spence at Yale University. Um, and the real reason I, I wanted to work with, with Jonathan was uh, his remarkable skill as, a, as an author and as a narrator. and and uh, I really just embraced the way that he he captured stories that that 
told something interesting while also uh, probing at important questions. And so that was the, the start of my academic journey. And then in terms of my, uh, my time since, you know, since I, I was trained, um, I didn't really have a particular focus beyond like I wrote a dissertation about, about Harbin in the 1920s and 30s. And as my career moved on, I discovered that I was really focusing a lot on questions that had to do with this intersection of China and the West. And that wasn't the idea, it wasn't a target that I set out to aim for, um, but it was someplace that I discovered I had been, been looking at for some time. So in that, that first project, looking at Harbin and Russian colonialism and Chinese nationalism, and then followed that up with, with a book about a, a Chinese monk who is uh, founding Buddhist temples, kind of in, in opposition to uh, colonial regimes in places like Harbin and Qingdao and Hong Kong. Uh, mm-hmm. And then eventually had the opportunity to to look for someplace new. And, and honestly, after having done work in Harbin, which is not a very hospitable place, either in terms of climate or in terms of <laughs> uh, research access, um, I was happy to move down to, to Shanghai where, well, not like Shanghai has the best weather, but it is better than, than Harbin. Um, mm. Although you spend a lot of time up further north than that. So, uh, so maybe, maybe you don't find it the same way, but it was nice to work in Shanghai. And certainly there was a lot of dynamism there. So I, I really just settled on a place where I could find the kinds of stories that would enable me to get at that, those relationships and, and try to tell that, that story. Mm. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'd concur that Harbin certainly has its, uh, its downsides climatically, um, but maybe it's uh, more of a summer uh, sojourning location uh, to escape the Shanghai humidity uh, if one were to tailor a, a kind of research career around uh, yeah, those kind it of is, migrations. Is that for sure. The thing I, I always, always would say about Harbin is it, it's best viewed through a historian's eyes because its past is much, is much brighter than its, uh, than its present, I'm afraid. <laughs> that may be the, uh, yeah, the mantra of uh, Dongbei in general, I think. Um, but uh, in any case, well, that, that's, uh, that's great to know uh, sort of how the, this Shanghai idea uh, came about. Um, I mean, it, as far as uh, the main focus of the book, and I brought it up in the introduction, um, I guess uh, it, it is uh, remarkable that you found this single day, basically, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the kind of long, many decades long collision of uh, Western and, and Chinese societies there, uh, in which so much happened. So as we move into uh, the prologue and, and basically chapter one of the book itself, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how it was that your historical kind of uh, explorations in Shanghai led you to realize that there is this kind of, uh, yeah, defining moment, uh, the single day that is uh, Champions Day of the title. Well, there's a, there's a contradiction implicit in the title right away, which is that part of what the book tries to, to demonstrate is there, there isn't a moment, right? There isn't a bright line that separates one era from another. And that's something that historians have been, have been making a point of for some time. Um, I also wanted, though, to indicate that even though, even though it's a gradual process, there are moments that capture a lot of the processes and a lot of the tensions that are kind of are different between and among different eras. So for, for this particular day, it wasn't as though I began the project thinking, ah, November 12th, 1941, obviously that's the day we need to look at. And in fact, um, I had the wrong day initially because, because what, what happened as, as the, process went forward, um, the racetrack attracted me as a place that was bringing together all these different, uh, different aspects and elements of Shanghai society. And I knew that the, the Japanese invasion was coming. And so I looked for a moment, looked for a day, was there an event, was there something that was going to really encapsulate the different 
the different processes I wanted to write about. And mm. so there's a, a book called China Races by a, a, a British civil servant named Austin Coates, who uh, describes the history of horse racing, primarily British colonial horse racing in, in China. And he describes uh, a day in May, I think it's May the 6th, that was the last Champions Day. Mm. And so that's what I started researching. And I spent a week or so. Uh, and then when I went to follow that up and I looked, went to November, where I could try to figure out, okay, well, what would have happened during the next Champions Day? Because the Champions Stakes occurred twice a year, once in the spring, one in the fall. So I went to look in the first fall without one. And how did people respond to that? And I found that, well, they didn't respond to its absence because it was present. Um, so then I moved to November 12th. And when I found that November 12th was the last Champions Day before the Japanese invasion, then what I did is started researching, okay, what else was going on on that day? And I was very fortunate uh, because uh, the, the funeral of Liza Hardoon, which captures so many elements of what was going on in Shanghai, and also the fact that it was Sun Yat-sen's birthday, which, which tied in with the Japanese and the collaborationist regime that was operating. Um, and then a few other things that happened to be going on as well, which, which honestly would happen on any day. I mean, you choose any day and there, uh, certain things are going to be interesting if you hold them up to the light in a, in a certain way. So right. I found, uh, you know, I was, I was lucky to an extent, but I was also looking for, for something that was going to give me an opportunity to tell the story that I thought was important to tell. Right. Absolutely. And, and uh, you kind of uh, delve into each of those uh, events and, as you say, some of what's going on, I guess, uh, off, off stage uh, as regards other sort of occurrences in Shanghai in part three of the book. And we'll perhaps um, delve into the kind of detail of that uh, when we get there. But actually, you know, the book's about an awful lot more than just a, a single day. And, and there's a huge amount uh, more going on uh, in, in the other parts, which give us a big picture of uh, what Shanghai society was like. Um, but before actually kind of getting onto that, I, I also wanted to ask about racing. And you mentioned there coming across this book, Shanghai, uh, China Races, uh, and the, uh, the kind of, you know, animating theme of the book as a whole is, uh, is the horse racing going on in the city. Are you personally a uh, racing enthusiast? Uh, how did that kind of come into your life? No, I mean, I am a, I am a, a sports fan, as we would put it in, in American English. Um, so as a sports fan, um, I, I've always found sports history to be an interesting way to get at some of the, the broader trends in society. And, um, but I had, didn't have a lot of experience. I mean, I, I went to the races, I will, I will confess, I went to the races a fair few times doing research for the book because I felt I needed to, to be, uh, understand that a bit. And I went in Hong mm. Kong and also in the United States. But, uh, but no, I didn't have a lot of experience with, with racing, um, had a, a kind of frustrated, uh, ambition to be a sports writer back in my, when I was in college and things like that. But, but otherwise just as an amateur uh, observer and enjoyed, enjoyed the way that sports, uh, brought out certain elements of cultural history, but was what I discovered for, with horse racing, especially in this era in the 1940s, and then we, we can talk about going back, but when you get to champions day, um, First half of the 20th century sport, uh, sorry, horse racing was the most popular spectator sport uh, in the world. Um, and it brought together, you know, it brought enormous crowds out to the races. Um, and it was particularly so in, in the English speaking, speaking world. Um, uh, the French as well had, had a great horse racing tradition, but in the United States, in Britain, in Australia, um, and in other countries around the world as well. So the, the mapping on of British imperialism to the importance of horse racing as a spectator sport coming together in the center, literally in the center of Shanghai was, uh, was just something that's kind of irresistible as a, as a topic. 
Understandably so. And uh, yeah, it is absolutely kind of at the heart of things. Uh, you begin by giving us a little sense of its uh, long lasting legacy in, in terms of the actual sort of spatial arrangements of Shanghai. I hadn't realized myself, you know, despite having been to the city uh, many, many times, that the People's Park and People's Square uh, and, and indeed the sort of streets adjacent to it, if you look on, uh, on Google or Baidu or your chosen map provider, uh, you know, you can see the, yeah, these sort of vestigial. Uh, you know, marks of the outline of the racetrack in the street plan. It's absolutely fascinating. So, uh, People's Park is, is, you know, right at the heart of the, of the city. Um, and as you say, I guess, therefore, sort of emplaced as part of the, uh, you know, historical project of Shanghai, which was in many cases, uh, this, this colonial one. Um, we'll, we'll jump into the kind of, uh, rich description you give in part one of, uh, life during the, um, uh, latter part of the 19th century and early 20th century in the city. Um, you introduce this idea of Shanghai landers, which I guess is one that's quite often come across when looking at this period and, and the kind of non-Chinese population of Shanghai. So could you give us a bit more of a picture of uh, who these people were, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of imperial dynamics that were at play, um, and of course, yes, of uh, racing within that? Sure. Well, you know, and, and to begin with, there's a controversy as to whether we should pronounce it Shanghai landers or Shanghailanders. Um, mm. And uh, it's, as a class, it's an interesting. So I, I spent a lot of time talking about this and, and Robert Bickers um, uh, is probably the, the preeminent historian of, of looking at the Shanghailanders. Um, so they were, there's, there's some debate as to how broadly and how narrowly you want to make that category. So most narrowly conceived, the Shanghai landers would be these sort of settler colonials um, who would be, if you're very strict about it, they would be British. Now they were mostly uh, they were mostly English, uh, English and Scottish, but they were they were British. They were white. They were mostly men. They were mostly, but not all, somewhat well off. Um, but what's important about them is they become the the dominant social and administrative class in the city. Um, I use the term more loosely than that. Um, and, and I'm not unique in that, uh, in using it that way. So when I'm talking about Shanghai landers, for the most part, I am talking about, about white colonials. Um, but even that category gets very, very murky very quickly because as I write about in the book, a number of the people who were, who were Shanghai landers were of mixed race, um, and had Chinese parents and, and English parents. And that, sometimes made more of a difference than others, depending on the exact context and the exact situation that they were in. But families like the Q-Mines and, and families um, like the Aitkenheads and, and families like the Sassoons, um, these were all people who were, who were in Shanghai, played a significant role. And depending on exactly when and where they were, they might be more of a Shanghai lander than, than, than not. Mm. Um, what, what became really important in, um, in as, as, the, as the city was growing, because, so, I mean, we should go back, go back to the beginning, as many of the listeners will know. So it's not until 1843 that you have the first, the first British arriving. Um, and you have almost from the beginning, then you have the start of a class of people who had gone to, to China to make a living uh, or to make a fortune uh, or to make a life on the, on the China coast, coming from Hong Kong, uh, going to Hong Kong or to Shanghai or some of the other treaty ports that were open. And so you have a couple of different generations of, of people who are there. So the, by the time you get into the 20th century, some of the folks who would be identified as Shanghai landers um, would have insisted that only applied to people who had been there since the 19th century. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas from other perspectives, a Shanghai lander might simply be any, any white person who was living in Shanghai. 
Um, and there's a, it, to some extent, an academic debate, but it does, it did make a difference to the people who were living there as to what your relationship to the city was. Right. Right. And in terms of, uh, yeah, the case, the place of racing and how, uh, racing began, uh, from those early days, as you mentioned, all the way back to the mid 19th century, um, was that something that was key to, uh, this, uh, Shanghai Lander, Shanghai Lander, yeah. uh, lives from the very start? Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, one of the, it's, it's, it was remarkable to me when I started the research. I mean, within a few months, it seems, of the first, uh, British arriving in Shanghai, they started racing horses, um, initially just racing it on some of the, the mud flats down by the river, but they built a race course very quickly after that. There's some debate as to whether or not Hong Kong or Shanghai had the first race course. Um, in in China, but uh, I think I think it was probably Hong Kong, but it's uh, it's not entirely clear. Um, but then very quickly they built these two subsequent racetracks in sequence um, out to the, the to the current uh, to the current location, which, as you were saying, is at People's Square and People's Park. Um, right, if you look at an aerial view, you can see it quite clear the big oval that is there. And, and it took it took it took a couple of decades to move out to that point. Um, but so by the 18, uh, the 1850s, 1860s, you had that very clearly established and it was central to the life of Shanghai landers. And to be clear, and this is really important, is that even though the membership of the Shanghai race club remained uh, racist throughout, I mean, it, it was a whites only club um, until, it, until it ceased to be a club. But that doesn't mean that the races themselves were entirely white. In fact, about 80 to 90 percent, as best we can tell of the spectators would have been Chinese. And many of the people in the members enclosure would also have been Chinese because they had guest privileges. There is a, a little bit of kind of uh, racist accounting maneuvers that enabled, um, enabled Chinese owners of horses in their other tracks, which we may get to uh, in the course of the conversation. There are other racetracks that had uh, Chinese owners and mm -hmm. they had privileges at the Shanghai racetrack. So they were enabled the members at the Shanghai race club to maintain the fiction um, that they weren't allowing Chinese in. But of course, they also relied on the revenue and they relied on the popularity of the, of the track and of the bets that came into the track uh, from the Chinese population. So again, it was, it was very Shanghai. I, I mean, I phrase it in there. It's kind of both cynical and, and cosmopolitan and racist and pragmatic and all these different things going in together. But right. I, would, I would make it's really important to keep in mind that, that the races were popular across... across um, the, the really the broad spectrum of Shanghai society. Well, I guess empire is, yeah, it's never, it's a project that is never hesitant to, uh, you know, hoover up uh, local resources, whether that's, uh, you know, natural ones or, or yeah, I guess yes, consumer, sure. consumer dollars amongst the local population. Um, but uh, as far as the kind of technical operation of the race tracks and the club uh, uh, is go, uh, goes as we're on it, um, who, were the, who were the jockeys and the owners of the horses uh, and also what kind of horses were being raced? <laughs> Well, so I'll start with the, I'll start at the end. Um, so one thing that the, 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 it was note, noteworthy about the Shanghai races is that the horses weren't, weren't technically horses. They were ponies. They were these called Shanghai or China ponies. Um, and the descriptions of them make them sound quite unimpressive. Um, they were, they were small, uh, they were short, they were shaggy, they were broad. Um, it's not clear that they were really all that fast. Um, but the, but the Shanghai landers loved them and, uh, they, they loved their competitive spirit. And they loved uh, the, how competitive they were in the races. Um, but because they were so small, you would wind up with these scenes and, and you could see it uh, when, when you look at images of, of the track, as you can 
see that the owners are standing taller than the, um, than the horses that they're leading in, um, mm-hmm. which is not something you see with the, the thoroughbred in, in, uh, in England or in, or in the U.S. You did have uh, thoroughbreds running there as well, which would be imported for the most part from Australia. Uh, and they did race there and, and they were part of the Shanghai races, but they never attracted the attention that the, that the China ponies did. Uh, in terms of the owners and the the jockeys, uh, so the jockeys themselves are a really fascinating group, um, and they were from all over the place. So uh, a number of the jockeys were were Chinese, a number of the jockeys were were uh, European, mainly English. Um, some were American, uh, some were Australian. A number were were quote unquote Portuguese. Uh, the Portuguese weren't for the most part from Portugal. They were usually families that had come into China through the Portuguese enclave at Macau. Um, some of them had been there for, for decades or, or centuries, um, but they had really been living in Chinese treaty ports and in China for, for, for generations. So they were Portuguese only in the sense that their ancestry traced back to Portugal to some extent, but it was, it was a pretty vague term. And so anyone who um, kind of white Shanghai didn't want to count quite as being, uh, being not quite white enough uh, but they clearly weren't Chinese, and oftentimes that category people got uh, Portuguese. They got assigned that that label. Uh, right. Russians for were another one. Uh, one of the main jockeys who I write about is a uh, Alex Stryker, whose name was uh, Alexei Stryevsky uh, before it was anglicized. Uh, but he was uh, the the son of a of a Russian army officer hmm. um, who who came to to ride and and kept, caught the attention of the British and the American authorities in in the city. Um, and then you asked about the owners. The owners were typically, um, I mean, they were typically at the top of the social structure. Um, owning a horse wasn't as expensive as owning a horse is now. Um, so it didn't mean that you were kind of in the, the, the really super rich um, of, of Shanghai society. But certainly if you owned a horse, that meant that you were, you were comfortably well off. And it became very much a symbol of, of success. So for instance, the, the people who I write about at the center of, of my story, people like Cornell Franklin, who's the American or, um, or uh, Arthur Henchman, who's the English manager of, of the HSBC branch, um, one of the things that they, they see owning a horse as being uh, kind of a badge of their status within Shanghai society. Mm-hmm. And uh, that included, uh, again, it included al- almost everybody who was of means in Shanghai, not necessarily the, the wealthiest people in the city, but anybody who wanted to establish their status would, would own a horse and be seen at the racetrack. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I guess that gives us a quite good sense of, uh, you know, some of the um, often exclusive and, and yeah, very much status oriented dynamics at play at the Shanghai Race Club, which is this first sort of main um, foreign founded uh, racetrack in the city. But as you've already hinted at, uh, interest in racing and I guess some of the, uh, you know, the, one of the consequences of exclusion from that uh, motivated local Chinese people or even also Chinese people from outside Shanghai uh, to found other racetracks and indeed sort of, uh, yeah, I guess, embed them in a, in a wider uh, Chinese Shanghai, if you like. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a sort of unnecessary label maybe, but since the foreign influence was so great, uh, the idea that there was a kind of uh, also equally quite cosmopolitan Chinese Shanghai is, I think, an important one that you raised. So uh, could you tell us something about uh, the, the, the Chinese city and uh, yeah, the racing activities that uh, took off there. Yeah, so I probably should have said when we were talking about Shanghai Landers, one of the other kind of one of the, I mean, innovations uh, is is too strong. But one of the the tacks that I take in introducing the Shanghai Landers is I, as I raise the question of Chinese Shanghai Landers, 
And and some people would reject that notion out of hand, saying that the kind of the point of being a Shanghailander is that you have to be a uh, a, colon, a colonist from abroad. So typically, typically white American or English for the most part, mm-hmm. American or British. Um, but I think there are Chinese, what I call Chinese Shanghailanders, are of this class of people. They're they're cosmopolitan. Um, they're international. They're often living in the the French concession or the international settlement, which are these two parts of Shanghai at the center of the city, which we'll probably get to when we talk about the the Japanese invasion. Um, but there are these uh, Chinese who are quite wealthy. Um, they're quite cosmopolitan. They are often internationally educated, but not always. And um, and they also had the means and the interest in 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 uh, running and owning horses. And so when they found themselves excluded from the race club, they opened, um, first they built a new racetrack at Jiangwan. Uh, Jiangwan uh, is north of the center of the city and it is where in uh, 1930s is where this new Chinese city center is kind of this new Shanghai uh, is going to be built as a rival to the international settlement that's a few miles Mm -hmm. to the south. And built this really spectacular kind of Art Deco race racetrack, which is uh, just sadly destroyed. There's an image of it in the book of uh, after it had been bombed out. It's destroyed in 1937. Um, and then another track is built, in fact, further out because the 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 Jiangwan track is is operated by Chinese and Chinese owners, but it includes Chinese and foreign owners, and it's financed by the Shanghai Race Club and kind of an. an kind of a maneuver that they want to keep their own race club whites only, but they're going to own this own, this other course, which is going to include Chinese and, um, and English, um, and, and white racers. Um, but that kind of enables them to keep the Shanghai race club the way that they want it. Then there's a third track that opens at Yangtze, which is further out, uh, near where the Yangtze river enters the sea. Uh, mm-hmm. and it was completely Chinese financed and, and did not permit, uh, foreign owners to, to race there. Um, although spectators would go to all three. So at the, at the height of the Shanghai racing scene from the 1920s and into the early 30s, um, you would have all three of these tracks racing. And so almost every weekend you would have, you would have races going on. And, and as I was saying, the, about 80 or 90% of the spectators at the Shanghai Race Club would be Chinese. But conversely, um, when, the, when the track at Jiangwan was running, they would run on Sundays, which the Shanghai Race Club did not race on Sundays. And so you would have these traffic jams of cars just driving from the center of the city, uh, the several miles up to Jiangwan to see the, see the races in, in, uh, uh, in the Chinese run club. So it was, mm-hmm. it was quite a cosmopolitan uh, scene, although, again, within this racist framework. Right. I mean, the way that the book sort of takes us to ground level like that, I think uh, it, it's why racing is such a, a, a kind of rich and, and yeah, vibrant lens through which to look at life in the city because uh, really you bring out the uh, liveliness and the, as you say, the traffic jams or people stopping to uh, pray at a couple of uh, deity altars to uh, for good luck during the races on street corners on their way to the races and uh, many kind of very, I guess, yeah, quotidian uh, experiences that I think, uh, you know, give a sense of what was what life was like on you know, what is today uh, a pretty bustling Nanjing Lu and, uh, you know, kind of an area which is really at the heart of uh, China, of Shanghai's bustle in the present. Um, but yeah, kind, kind of uh, very rich descriptions of uh, what was going on. Yeah, I think um, it's, it really is important to, to recognize, I mean, that we often have um, an impression of, sh- of horse racing as being, as being very posh. Uh, and certainly there was a posh element to it. And you would see the fancy hats and the, and the costumes that people would wear for, especially for Champions Day. But 
it's also, there's another element to it and, and it really did cut across social class and across nationality and across race. Um, and that, I, mean, I tried to get at that in, in different ways in the, in the races because it really does encapsulate, encapsulate all of, uh, or most of Shanghai, not simply this, this one very narrow colonial slice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, as you've mentioned, uh, by the 30s, you do have this sort of full spectrum, uh, you know, the, the races, the three different race clubs all uh, together do offer a really good spectrum of looking at that full range of, uh, of Chinese life from, uh, well, oh, sorry, of Shanghai life from uh, an international world, which uh, excludes Chinese people to a, a Jiangwan kind of semi-hybrid, but I guess still somewhat international uh, settlement dominated because of the investment. And then the Yangzhou track, which uh, yeah is a, is a more exclusively Chinese sphere, so that's kind of the setting, I guess, at the uh, as we enter the thirties. Um, but you've already uh, yeah, alluded to the Japanese invasion, which clearly ch- turns things on their heads somewhat. So, um, could you say something about uh, what I guess is the subject of part two um, and how the Japanese uh, occupation of the city transformed life for all of these different communities and uh, and indeed for the race scene? Right. So. Um so first of all, the Japanese had sort of invaded in 1932. 1932, there's a Shanghai War, uh, and that shuts down the, the Jiangwan track for a while and threatens to actually postpone racing at the, the Shanghai Race Club for, uh, for a couple of weeks. But Shanghai recovers from that pretty quickly, and things go back. And, and as the tensions between China and Japan rise throughout the 1930s, Shanghai kind of continues on. As it was, the city of Jiangwan, which is being constructed, um, or I should say, the kind of the section of the city of, of uh, that is Jiangwan, is being built as a as a very spectacular modernist Art Deco uh, rival to the to the international settlement just to the south. That all changes dramatically in the summer of 1937. So when you have uh, the the Lugochao, the Marco Polo Bridge incident in in July of 1937, that precipitates you know, what really is the start of the Pacific War uh, in, in Asia. And the Japanese very quickly invade most of coastal China, and that includes Shanghai, with, with two, one or two, depending how you want to count, significant exceptions. So at the center of Shanghai are these two different districts. So one is the French concession, which is administered by the French. Um, and then the other is the international settlement. And the international settlement um, originally had included the French concession, but the French uh, divided divided their section off earlier. Um, and this international settlement, which is administered primarily by um, British and American, there are other nationalities as well, but the British and the Americans are definitely the most uh, important uh, important to its administration. And it's not run by government officials. It's run by professionals, for the most part by businessmen uh, and lawyers. And they... Um, because in 1937, none of those countries are at war, um, and they're not at war with the Japanese, to be sure, um, the international settlement and the French concession, which I'll just call it the inter- these international concessions, they remain neutral. So mm-hmm. the Japanese invade all of the city, and so that includes Jiangwan, where the other racetrack was and the, and the new Shanghai is being built. That includes Yangtze, where the, the Chinese racetrack was, and every other part of the city. Uh, Every other part of the city is occupied by the Japanese, but not this international settlement. So you wind up with this really bizarre moment where the, the center of the city, which is a very small area, uh, is remaining neutral, but the other parts of the city are at war. And if you think about China in 1937, I mean, the, the rape of Nanking and the atrocities that take place there, that's only 
you know, only a couple hundred miles from mm. Shanghai. It's quite close. And literally from the rooftops of the buildings in, in the center of, Shang, of, of Shanghai, you can see the fires uh, burning uh, in Shanghai that's around. And, and the Shanghai landers would go up on the roofs of their houses and their hotels and their office buildings and, and sort of watch the war happen. The only mm. time the war really comes directly into the international settlement is in August of 1937 when you have Black Saturday um, um, or Bloody Saturday. And that's uh, the, uh, an accidental bombing. Actually, it's dropped by a Chinese plane uh, where it kills several hundred, maybe uh, a couple thousand people die. We, don't, we won't really know. And part of the reason we won't know is another aspect of what's, what's happening in, in what's called, comes to be called the Lone Island. Um, is because you have refugees who are swarming in. These refugees are, are kind of undocumented at this point. They haven't even had a chance to figure out how many there are or where they're from or what they're doing. Um, and a lot of them are, are killed. But mm. that's one of the few episodes of actual violence that takes place during this Lone Island period. Otherwise, mm. it is this increasingly bizarre and obviously unsustainable situation. But as 1937 turns to 38, which turns to 39, which turns to 1940, which turns into 1941. It's now been going on for four or five years. I think the people in Shanghai start to think, of, well, we know this is not sustainable, but on the other hand, it keeps persisting. So maybe it, maybe it is sustainable. Um, mm -hmm. And so the racetrack becomes both absurd and fundamental um, because it really is giving the people in Shanghai an opportunity to distract themselves from what's going on all around them. But, but it, is, it is absolutely ridiculous that you have uh, this war. You know, it's becoming the, the largest you know, conflict in the history of the world. Um, and yet you have people spending their resources and their time watching horses race literally within sight of uh, the fires burning from, from the war taking place all around them. Mm. Yeah, and I think the kind of vision of this partially occupied city, this uh, city semi at war, as you mentioned, um, is in some ways uh, a very indicative one of the inequalities and divisions and exclusions. I mean, uh, one of your main characters is uh, this chap, um, Da Yudun or Dong Da Yo, I, I think is a, a kind of, uh, I guess, pin, uh, Mandarin pronunciation of, of that name, who's, you know, the architect of some of this new Chinese city that is being built to the north. And um, you document, you know, how his some of his uh, projects get kind of bombed out and destroyed, um, as does, as you already mentioned, the, uh, the Jiangwan racetrack at this time. So, uh, yeah, really a kind of uh, big contrast there in terms of the fate and experience of these, uh, I guess, well-to-do uh, international settlement denizens who can sort of spectate on the war and those who are really, you know, suffering from the Japanese occupation. It is, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Dong Dayo or, or Dayu Dun. Um, because he is, he's, he's probably my, he's probably my favorite character, uh, to write about. And even though, I mean, he's certainly not the central character. Um, but he, you know, because of his work, uh, as an architect and he's designing this, this, um, city center, which is very much a nationalist project. I mean, it's an attempt to give Shanghai something that is going to, um, make it Chinese. And, and I mean, there's people write very explicitly about the, the kind of the embarrassment that what it would, an international foreign city. Uh, Shanghai has come to be, and they are trying to re remake it as a, as a Chinese place. But he can't live there. He can't live in Jiangwan. He lives in the French concession because that's the place that's where he's safe to uh, to live because of the war. And the only reason that the the international settlement uh, is safe is because of the foreign presence. So it's interestingly this kind of dueling colonial and dueling imperialisms 
um, mm. is that the, the, the British imperialism and the French imperialism is, is protecting this part of Shanghai from Japanese imperialism, which is encroaching on it. Um, right. Yes. Yeah, it really yeah, gives a picture of, uh, of a city and a community pulled from pillar to post, really, when it comes to uh, foreign <laughs> exploitation and uh, yeah, external invasion. Um, now, moving into part three, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you kind of zoom in on this single day. Um, and I have to say, you know, the pacing of the book as a whole is a really great uh, I guess device that you that you use uh, for drawing attention to this because you know from sections that deal with several decades and then uh, the second part which is over a period of several years of the Japanese invasion we then have you know an entire part of the book dedicated to a day so it really sort of slows the action right down and you move between uh, the Shanghai Race Club and then uh, as we've already kind of mentioned the uh, birthday party for Sun Yat-sen and uh, the funeral uh, of uh, Lisa Hardoon um, so. I wonder if you could kind of uh, give us a picture of these these uh, three events and uh, you know what, what it was that uh, kind of uh, meant that you saw them as particularly indicative of what was going on uh, and and how you decided I guess also to to structure things in this way kind of uh, different races going on at the track and then other other events occurring throughout the day. Uh, no, it's, that's a um, that's really fundamental to to how the book came to be and and it wound up a little different. Differently than than the initial plan, which I guess is is always the case. But initially, the book was going to focus very explicitly on this one day. It was it was going to begin. You know, I had visions of it beginning at dawn or just before dawn, and it would go until until sundown or or being Shanghai probably until midnight. But it was really mm-hmm. going to be structured almost hour by hour, and um, and I wound up doing that for this one section. So I thought these three events were were fundamental um, to trying to build a picture of what was going on in Shanghai on that day, but I thought it, it radiated out to give a picture of what Shanghai was uh, at this moment and what it represented for this era. So the races we've already talked about, and I tried to give some sense, and you know, I just didn't, I, I think I indulged myself a little bit because I really enjoyed writing about the races <laughs> and, the, and the color that was available in the newspapers from that era. I mean, I, I took just a, uh, a fraction of what was available. There was just so much about the, the races and the, and the, and the jockeys and the silks. And, uh, I remember sitting in the archive in, uh, in Xu Jiahui at the, the old Jesuit library out in at what had been the outskirts of Shanghai. It's now just in Shanghai. Um, mm-hmm. and just going through these newspapers and, and finding descriptions of what everybody was wearing and, and the colors and, and it really painted a picture that I, I felt, uh, I just enjoyed writing about. So that was fun. Um, but that was kind of part of the point of a point part of the point of demonstrating how fun it was, was to try and give a contrast to what was going on in other parts of the city. And the, and the greatest contrast would have been the birthday celebrations for Sun Yat-sen. These were taking place in Jiangwan. And so there was a connection with the racing because there had been the horse races there uh, earlier. And also to Dayu Dun, because Dayu Dun, who had been doing the architecture for that area, he was also going to be at the horse races in, in Shanghai uh, in, at the Shanghai Race Club because he, he was a race fan. He was a, he was a horse aficionado and had horses at his, at his, uh, at his home. Um, but the birthday celebrations themselves are, are really complicated. And, and I, mean, it's, I mean, teaching about Chinese history and trying to explain it, I, I really, in this era, I really feel that the, the challenge for the historian is try to complicate what seems simple and to simplify what seems complicated. And in this mm-hmm. moment, it really is a challenge to try and tell a narrative that can make sense because the, the celebration for Sun Yat-sen's birthday 
is being carried out by the Chinese government, but it's a Chinese government that is working at the at the pleasure of the Japanese occupier. So this is the the what's called the puppet government, um, the collaborationist government uh, that's led by Wang Jingwei, um, and it's at war really with the other the other Chinese governments that are functioning. So the nationalist government, which has fled, had been in Nanjing and has now fled uh, to Chongqing. Uh, and of course, the communists who are ultimately going to prevail over both of those, but they're probably the weakest up in the, up in the Northwest. But you have um, a, a nationalist figure who is being celebrated by an occupying force working through its puppet regime. So just trying to, I mean, talking with my editor, um, I mean, it really, just being able to explain it clearly to my editor, what I was trying to say was making it painfully clear just what a challenge it was going to be to tell the story very simply. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that moment there was at least, at least you could see it. Um, and the fact that you could bring these people together at where the statue of Sun Yat-sen had been and then trying to complicate the, the notion of what, of what politics were like for Shanghai in that moment. Mm. I mean, you do mention that uh, it was something extraordinary in a way that the Japanese were in, sort of allowing this celebration to occur because previous years, as far as uh, I recall from the book, you, you say that it hadn't actually been allowed, you know, as, as a sort of mark of Chinese, you know, separateness and, and national pride. So why was it that this year uh, you could have a Sun Yat-sen birthday party? That's a, that's a fair question. Um, yeah. So the, the occupation of, of, of Shanghai outside the international settlement was completed on November 12th. Um, just coincidentally enough, uh, November 12th of 1937. So the next time it would come up would have been in, in 1938. So prior to that, there had been much larger um, celebrations. Uh, you'd have you'd have had 10, 20,000 people gathered uh, in, in the plaza celebrating um, Sun Yat-sen's birthday, which made a lot of sense because they're building the city as a nationalist response to the foreign, uh, the foreign presence. Um, the Japanese obviously stopped that because they are, they're wanting to fight against Chinese nationalism. Um, so mm. why did they change their mind? I think that they were looking for a different strategy. Um, they needed, there were clearly um, tensions within the Chinese community, and they're trying to co-opt people to come and support them. And so rather than trying to portray Sun Yat-sen as being a, an enemy or Sun Yat-sen as being somehow uh, bad, they're, tr- they're trying to co-opt him um, and to say that they're actually heirs to the legacy of of Sun Yat-sen, which was patently absurd, um, but nonetheless, they, they tried it. Now, it's hard to say what they would have. I mean, obviously, the war goes, goes differently, and this is the only moment when you have the celebration happening when the rest of the city is not fully occupied. Um, right. But they, and, you know, they, they get some people to come out. It's not a very big crowd. There's maybe a thousand people. Maybe there are a few more than that, um, mm. but it's not really, it's not celebrated uh, with the kind of enthusiasm that certainly had been there before, because I think like you and I talking about it right now, it's just a really confusing moment as to try and figure out, okay, are we, whose side are we on? Like this, we're not, we don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah. The description of it as a semi Japanese backed, but not particularly raucous celebration of a Chinese nationalist figure is, is in itself probably sufficient to sort of, or at least draws in many of the, I guess, counter veiling complexities of uh, yeah, what was going on uh, in a city that was also, uh, as we discussed, foreign occupied. Um, the third uh, event of the day is uh, this big funeral. And um, actually, this kind of brings attention to another group of uh, Shanghai lander figures uh, who feature in the first part of the book as well, um, uh, including those that, as you say, were 
um, uh, people who uh, marriages between uh, Chinese and non-Chinese couples, um, and also the uh, the Jewish presence in the city at the time. Um, you mentioned the Sassoons earlier uh, in the in the book, and uh, this uh, funeral is that of Lisa Eliza Hardoon. Um, yeah. So, could you tell us who she is and uh, what it is that you know her biography and indeed her funeral bring out about the complexities of, of life in the city? Yeah, Liza Hardoon uh, is a fascinating figure in her own right. So she's got a French father, a Chinese mother, um, and she winds up marrying Silas Hardoon, who is one of the wealthiest of the of the wealthy businessmen in, in Shanghai. Uh, makes his living in real estate and and opium. Makes his fortune, I should say, in real estate and, and opium. Um, he dies in 1931, and she inherits his fortune. Although there's a big uh, to do over what her proper citizenship would be and who could could dispose of the the will and who could execute the the fortune. But uh, so when she dies in 1941, it really is the end of of an era um, because of what she had been a part of. Um, Jewish Shanghai is something that I only uh, hint at a little bit. I, I write a little bit about the Sassoons and obviously about uh, Liza Hardoon and her and her her husband. Um, there's a book came out a week. Uh, within a week of mine this summer um, by Jonathan Kaufman called The Last Kings of Shanghai, uh, which mm-hmm. is looking at the Kaduris and the um, Sassoons um, and talking about their career in Shanghai and then uh, later in Hong Kong. Um, but there is a, a, a rich historiography of, of Jewish Shanghai. And, that, and they do indeed operate in, again, sort of this, this gray area because the, the, the kind of the properly British... Um, putting that in air quotes, um, Shanghai landers, a lot of them are very reluctant to admit Jews into their club, literally. Um, mm. But if you had enough money, um, a lot of things could be looked, could be ignored, could be overlooked. Um, so certainly uh, Sassoon's were prominent at the race club. Um, and in fact, uh, David Sassoon is, is sort of drummed out of Shanghai because he's so successful at the races that the, the people complain that there's no interest in the races anymore. This is in the late 19th century because um, he's bought all the best race races, uh, uh, race horses. He's um, got the best trainers. He's got the best facilities, and and it's just a question of of which Sassoon horse is going to win on any on any given day. Mm-hmm. Um, Liza Hardoon. Um, so so the Hardoon marriage is a really fascinating one. Um, Silas Hardoon is one of the few Shanghai landers who really embraces Chinese culture. Um, he. Um, they live in this uh, in this style that is is very much a combination of Chinese and Western. Um, they're both seen as being quite eccentric by um, people on on either side of that divide. Um, and uh, the their home, which they live in, was called the Hardoon Gardens or the Eilie Gardens, um, is a kind of a almost a theme park, which with which has Buddhist has Buddhist pagodas and it has uh, has Jewish. Um, uh, temples and it has uh, Chinese gardens and it's, a, it's an enormous compound where they where they lived. Um, they adopted um, more than uh, they adopt altogether. They adopted uh, about two dozen children um, mm. and they raised. They had some Eurasian children who they uh, promised to raise Jewish, uh, and then Liza separately adopted Chinese children. They had no. They had. They gave. Uh, she didn't give birth to any children, um, but they had this enormous adoptive family, which uh, which. Uh, with, again, they had these two different uh, halves to it. They were raised kind of together, but separately. Um, so, I mean, just get the sense that it was quite a unique uh, scene that was going on out there. And then <laughs> yeah. when, uh, when she died in 
she died in October. And when her funeral took place in November of 1941, it was an international event. I mean, you had it was reported on in the Los Angeles Times. It was reported on the New York Times. Uh, certainly there are newsreel crews from, from Europe and from America. Um, and there, by some estimates, there were more than 10,000 official mourners. Um, but many more people in that lined the, lined the road. And so that was kind of what I opened the book with is just as uh, 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 Arthur Henchman going from his home to the racetrack. But he would have to go by the, the security men with, with machine guns who were providing security for Liza Hardoon's funeral. And they would have built big, big archways over the roadway. Um, mm-hmm. So it really was a celebrity event that, um, you know, in some ways, not in some ways, it, it rivaled the, uh, the, the day at the races. Um, right. There were fewer people there, but there were, there, there were more than 10,000 people at the funeral. Yeah, well, absolutely. And that, that brings us back to, to the races on this uh, yeah, day of, of bustle. And um, you basically do have the kind of uh, racetrack as the center point of this chapter and move between the different stakes, uh, which I should say, you know, interestingly, uh, as you mentioned uh, in the book, are kind of named after these seemingly arbitrary uh, Chinese locations. I mean, on the day you have uh, both Hubei and uh, Xinjiang as, uh, yep. as locations, you know, giving their names to uh, different races uh, over the course of the day. And you also mention, I guess, some of the uh, the noises off, if you will, or the, the, the kind of side events, which, you know, I suppose, um, you know, looked at in the theme of the book do seem to... Uh, you know, foretell a kind of gloomy future, um, if not if that's not obvious already from the Japanese occupied city. So, uh, in particular, you highlight that uh, you know basically the day of the races and one of the parties after after the races have happened ends in a shootout um, at a at the cafe ballroom. Uh, I guess one of the city's desirable venues. Um, that sort of, I guess, does set things up for yeah this account of the very the very end, the the, the subtitle of the book, um, and that. Uh, is the subject of part four. So could you kind of, uh, I guess, give us a sort of sense of that, the, the denouement, basically, the, the, the uh, unfolding of an unraveling of uh, international settlement and, and Shanghai lander life um, in the aftermath of, of this last Champions Day? And when did the racing end? And, uh, you know, kind of what, what happened in, yeah. the, in the kind of following years? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, um, and again, that was, I remember doing this research process and, and I kept, I kept waiting for things to end and they kept not quite ending. So again, if I were writing a screenplay, it would have been, okay, we would make this much neater. Um, so, you know, as, I mean, as all historians know, uh, the people who are living at the time you're writing, the people you're describing in your writing, they, they don't know what's coming next. They might guess at it, but they don't, they don't know. And um, so it's not as if anyone woke up on November 13th and, and said, oh, well, that was the end of Shanghai. Um, so, uh, the Japanese uh, invasion that for Americans we market as, as Pearl Harbor, um, but that offensive that takes place uh, by the Japanese, which is on December 7th or December 8th for the most part in, in Asia, and that includes attacks on Hong Kong and on Singapore and on Manila and on all sorts of uh, other uh, eventually it will be allied outposts in, in East Asia, but that includes Shanghai. So the, the Japanese occupy the city on uh, December the 8th. So about three weeks after the Champions Day race and the racetrack closes down. But what I found remarkably is that very quickly the racetrack opens up again. Uh, and it seems like the Japanese are quite intent at first on trying to convince the Americans and the British that they were going to occupy Shanghai and permit it to continue as a colony just under their control and instead of under British or American control. 
Mm-hmm. And so the races would be able to continue going on and, and everything would go on just really as it had before. And so it starts off in, in December, uh, around New Year's, I mean, around the, the, the American, the Western New Year, um, when they start uh, running a, a, a series of races after Christmas and into January. And then the racing season kind of resumes. And in fact, there is another Champions Day, which is operated by the Japanese, includes some of the same horses, a number of them are renamed. Um, a lot of the owners are still involved. Um, and so that's kind of a, a half of a Champions Day because it's, it's clearly a very different scene than it had been in November. Um, mm-hmm. But they do call it Champions Day. And I put it in my little table at the end of the book with, a, with an asterisk as to, as to running this Champions Day. Um, the Japanese describe it as Champions Day. It, it's, it's clear that people come. Uh, it's not exactly clear how many people come. Um, but that, that whole spring is very awkward. Um, the, the reporting of the, the Shanghai Landers, the British Shanghai Landers, come in for quite a lot of criticism from, um, from the British military, for instance, who are, who are less than pleased that there are, are able-bodied British men who are you know, watching and racing horses instead of uh, fighting in the, in the war. Mm. And uh, that continues into the summer of 1942. And then it looks like in the fall of 1942, they're going to do this again, but then it gets canceled pretty abruptly. And I, I called that, uh, so I called after that, I really see that as the end of the Shanghai Race Club. A lot mm. of the allied owners and jockeys and anyone who's an allied national is interned. Um, and their internment camp sent up all around China, a number of them in and around Shanghai, the Empire of the Sun. Uh, right. the, the, the film, but the J.G. Ballard novel uh, kind of portray some of that, that era. Um, but that doesn't mean that the races stop. So even with the, the people who I write about, so the Franklins and the Aitken heads and the henchmen's, even though those people are either are back, have been repatriated or they're in prison, um, the races can, the racetrack stays open and it's run with uh, Japanese and um, Axis or, or neutral um, citizens who are uh, who are running the races or who are, o- who are owning the horses, who acquire the horses or who race the horses or a lot of Chinese. Um, and this is one aspect of the story that I think if you were to, to get into that period into uh, really focusing on what was going in the war, I think there are a lot of uncomfortable questions that people would ask about. Uh, and indeed that's why I think it's not talked about quite as much what goes on in Shanghai during the war is because Shanghai didn't suffer nearly as much as many other uh, cities under Japanese occupation. And a lot of the people were, you know, passively, I mean, collaborating is a, is a loaded term to use, but they certainly were living their lives under the Japanese in ways that were, um, that were, you couldn't say that they were actively resisting the, the, mm. the Japanese occupation. Mm. And um, reminds of, of Václav Havel's quote about the line between collaboration and resistance running not between individuals, but through them. And I think that very much describes what goes on in Shanghai during that period. Um, right. But, but when it actually ends, it's not until August of 1945. Um, the last races that I found ads for, uh, last running of the races was in early August of 1945, just a week or so before the dropping of the atomic bombs. Yeah, well, that's pretty extraordinary to, to contemplate, um, you know, on this background of, uh, of a city which, uh, as you highlight, yeah, remains as complex and, uh, you know, ambivalent to, uh, in terms of its inhabitants and their relationships. Um, as, as ever, really, uh, right up to uh, this, uh, yeah, this end uh, that you've described. Um, I wonder, just as a sort of concluding question, um, I mean, you've given us a picture of, of really, you know, uh, a level of complexity that I think uh, really merits having a, a, a continuous 
uh, theme running through the book, i.e. the races. I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant way of having a, an axis uh, to follow, uh, you know, uh, around which uh, an immensely um, diverse and sort of polyphonous life is, is revolving. So having kind of looked at all these different aspects of Shanghai at this time, um, it's a time when, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of easy from a, a sort of non or from a Western point of view to, to think of the, the romance. And, and there are writers who kind of celebrate the, the hedonism and the excess of Shanghai at this time for the colonial population. Um, but having looked at all these different sides of it, I just wonder how your research into this area changed your own view, if it did indeed change it, of the city at this time, and more broadly, how you would suggest you know we approach this era, perhaps of semi-colonial China in general. Yeah, it, it's really it, it, it was a discouraging. I mean, twenty twenty has been discouraging in in many ways. <laughs> um, it, it was discouraging because um, I looked back on this era and I see. I mean, there was so much that was wrong with what was going on in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. Um, just looking in Shanghai, this the again the the structural racism of the city, the exploitation of the city. It's it's no coincidence that the right that the communist movement, um, the communist party, founded in in Shanghai. Right, I mean that was really the one place where you had where you had these these just chasms between the wealthy and the poor um, that you had just kind of more visible than than you had anywhere else in in China. Just the the contrast, mm. and so that was really driven home in, in some of the scenes that I was researching about. Um, and certainly it was uncomfortable at times writing about, um, writing about these colonial, this colonial regime um, and trying not to celebrate it or, or be nostalgic for it. And I, I worked really hard to try and, and keep all these things in context. At the same time, I think it's really important to, to recognize that Shanghai wasn't a Chinese city, nor was it a foreign city. It was this, this hybrid. It was a, it was a mixture of, of forces that would it would not have been Shanghai if it didn't have both of those elements to it or all of those elements. It's not it's not a both and it's a it's a it's a multi part um, mm. uh, society. I mean, one of the things that I think gets lost sometimes is that it's it wasn't simply that people were either Western or Chinese. You had people coming not only from across Europe and across Asia and India and, and um, South America, but also the people in China. Um, the Chinese in Shanghai were from all over the country. It was a city of migrants from all from all over the place. So mm. uh, anyway, so that's one of the things that was discouraging was looking at kind of the the deep history of structural racism in China, and as we see the the the, the consequences of racism and the persistence of racism uh, in the United States, we're certainly grappling with this all the time. Um, I was also struck, though, again by this. You know, there had been a cosmopolitan impulse in Shanghai that I think did produce something. Uh, in a society that was unique, and I thought that uh, this may be naive on my part. Um, the idea that we we should be able to get a hold of these international uh, kind of cosmopolitan trends and try to find a way that we can build something a society that's greater than the sum of its parts. And right mm -hmm. now, I find myself very discouraged by looking at both the actions of the American government and the Chinese government and and plenty of governments in Europe. Um, mm -hmm. But there really is this this xenophobic pulling in, um, wanting to isolate oneself from, from, from neighbors and from potential partners. Uh, and I, I really think that's limiting. And so if, while recognizing just how flawed it was, I do think the idea of, a, of an international community that's really most successful when it's taking part in the energies and the traditions and the populations from all around the world, I really think that is something that I aspire to. And, and maybe, it's, maybe it's just because I, I really like to travel and I would mm -hmm. like to be 
be moving around the world and seeing my friends in other parts of the world and and uh, never mind the pandemic just the the politics of it so it's um it was it was sad to be to be reading and writing about this at the end and as i wrote the conclusions it it was it was not a moment of of optimism for sure right well and there was something poignant about the way you close out the book because you do bring us back to the sort of present day people's square uh, people's park uh, sort of area of shanghai and uh, you know yeah reading it obviously uh, outside china in the present one is reminded of the fact that it's uh, it's not currently possible to go there uh, so yeah. i think uh, you know it's yeah it's it's a, it's a very valuable reflection which uh, i thank you for jay but um i also thank you uh, of course for appearing today and uh, before we let you go uh, i might just ask you one last question which is our traditional question uh, namely what is it that you've been working on since uh, the conclusion of this book and yeah, what research projects do you have on the go at the minute? Uh, the, thing that's, um, the thing that's been occupying a lot of my time right now is I've been writing a, a weekly column for, for website SubChina just on this week in China's history, which um, gives me a chance to sort of look, take an episode from the past and try to draw connections with what's going on in the present. Again, not always an optimistic uh, outcome, but it, is, <laughs> it gives me, I, I enjoy that um, opportunity to try and take take history and, and try to apply some of its lessons to the present. Uh, in terms of my research project, I'm, I'm toying with a couple of different ideas. Um, one thing I'm looking at is the, is the career of, uh, of uh, Chung So Mei, who was uh, a, a woman who winds up, you know, begins a career as an anarchist, um, kind of a, a wealthy anarchist bomb smuggler, uh, winds up going to Versailles and being the only female delegate, delegate to the uh, Versailles Peace Conference when she's in France winds up coming back uh, serving as a lawyer and then a judge in Shanghai and uh, is married to the, to the uh, Taiwanese ambassador, or Chinese, but representing, the, representing Taiwan ambassador to the United States in World War II. And um, just, mm. there, there's a lot in that story and I haven't exactly told, figured out how to tell it, but that's kind of what I'm poking around at most actively. Fascinating. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that sounds just as indicative a story of, uh, uh, I guess, Sino-Western connection and the like as, as this is. So, We'll look forward very much to reading that uh, when it appears. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, Jay. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you to listeners for listening, if you've got this far. And uh, we will be back here on New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, very soon. Goodbye. Okay.